Hello, and welcome to episode 71 of the Movie Marathoners podcast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mati, and joining me today is also Mike from the Oscars podcast, Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Unfortunately, Mike One was feeling a little under the weather today, so he couldn't join us. Uh, But Mike, also Mike, we're going to call you Mike today. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. How's your holiday been? Oh, thanks so much for for having me. And uh, I know Mike wanted to be here to uh, uh, MF this movie as thoroughly (laughs) as I will try to do today. He texted me before recording. He's like, you have to hold this down for the both of us and make this an MMO statement of an episode. So I'm going to do my best to get that across because we do have standards to uphold with the Academy and Academy movies and Oscars level movies. So <laughs> this is going to be one of those mission statement styled episodes uh, today for us, body. But yeah, this is this has been a wild holiday season uh, for everybody, for the whole world coming off the election, coming off everything. I got COVID and mm. I still can't smell or taste, which is bizarre and which was the most bizarre yesterday yeah, uh, on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yeah, I mean, the textures were nice and, and happy, and I'm not contagious anymore, <laughs> so I was fortunate that I could actually be with some family yesterday, even though it was the smallest Thanksgiving we've ever had. But, uh, you know, sh- shout out to my my mom for cooking a great meal, and, and my few brothers, and some brothers didn't show, uh, who showed up. But I also blame my brothers, because they gave me COVID. I didn't see <laughs> anybody else. I was super careful. They gave me COVID watching Giants football on a Monday night. Uh, and uh, I was lucky that I got it kind of the last of the group, and I quor- I pre-quarantined, you know, because it was mm-hmm. going through my brothers. Like, one got it, and I was like, oh, no. Once one got it, I knew that, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm exposed. So I, I've been quarantined for like a month, and that's why I'm over-talking right now, because this is the only socializing I get. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was also, you know, quarantined for a while. I mean, I just, I haven't been in the office since everything shut down in March, but mm-hmm. we like me and my girlfriend were really careful to quarantine because we actually came down to Connecticut. So we're in your neck of the woods for uh, Thanksgiving with her parents. So it was a nice little oh, get together, but um, the weather in Connecticut has been super depressing the last couple of days. So yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a Connecticut podcast today. You've been on the podcast before to talk about the top five best picture nominations of the 2010s. And that was way back on episode 29. Mm. So if my math is correct, 41 episodes ago, it's been way too long. Uh, I'm glad you're back. Uh, That was a super fun conversation. If people haven't listened to that, still worth going back to those old episodes. But um, this week, we are talking about a film that's probably not going to be one of the top five best picture nominations of the 2020s. Uh, We're talking about the new Netflix original film, Hillbilly Elegy. So we'll warm up with spoiler-free thoughts, then we'll run into spoiler territory where we can talk freely about the film, and finally we'll finish with our point two section where we talk about what else we've been watching. But before we start, I just want to mention that if you're a fan of the Academy Awards and the prognosticating that goes on year-round, you definitely have to be listening to Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Uh, It's an awesome podcast. These guys know their stuff like nobody else in the business. And we'll be talking about some of the Oscar potential for Hillbilly Elegy briefly in this episode, but I'm sure that there will be more about that in uh, future Mike, Mike, and Oscar episodes. So you should definitely tune into those episodes and just learn so much about Oscar prognosticating. Well, thanks. Mike, is there anything you want to say about future episodes coming up? Well, I'll give a shout out to the past as well, because you've been on Mike, Mike, and Oscar with our review of Onward that happened 
pre-pandemic yeah. there. And I think that was kind of a zany episode. We were in a very strange mood for whatever reason yeah. that, uh, that day. And uh, I, I go back and listen to that episode still. I, I had a lot of fun. And uh, we're going to get you back on MMO. We kind of have a tentative agreement to bring you on at the end of our Make mini series that we're going to do over the next two weeks. We're going to review Citizen Kane, uh, the social network, Make, of course, and then to close out the two-week stretch celebrating the newest from David Fincher. We're going to do a Fincher Films Award show where you uh, hopefully can be our guest on that. So those are always fun. Uh, we, we love uh, interweaving a lot of homemade award shows on our award show review podcasts. And, you know, that's what we're getting into. And mm-hmm. it's almost uh, it's almost time, let's say. The Gotham Awards happened first. And, and we just got those nominations out. So we do this weekly awards season news show, Oscar Race Checkpoint. And those are going to come hot and heavy throughout the winter here. We also review every major contender uh, in a profile movie review, kind of like this one today. And, uh, you know, we, we're going to cover every precursor. We're going to have category previews and reviews and interviews with experts. And uh, we, I think... You know, fingers crossed our programming is kind of tried and true and works and, and our fans seem to like it. So we're going to definitely try and, and stick to that uh, this winter. So, yeah, that's that's what's happening on MMO. And um, I'm, I'm really excited that uh, we get to collab a few more times. Yeah. Yeah. Really looking forward to that. So definitely tune in for all of that. And like I said, just a great podcast to listen to and learn a lot about the Oscar predictions. So thanks, man. Uh, Let's go ahead and start with a synopsis of Hillbilly Elegy. So this is the synopsis on IMDb. It says, A Yale law student drawn back to his hometown grapples with family history, Appalachian values, and the American dream. So as a non-Ivy Leaguer, are you getting a little annoyed that they had to mention that he's from Yale there? Yeah, I mean... I get a little... (laughs) I bristle a little bit just as a jealous, you know, jealousy thing there. Yeah, as somebody who did not get into the Ivy Leagues I applied to, a little jealous there. But, I mean, good for this guy, I guess. We'll we'll get into it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, hillbilly elegy and Appalachian values and... Dude, we're we're in Appalachia for 10 minutes of screen time in this movie, though, right? I mean, I really get aggravated when a movie puts itself forth like it's supposed to be one thing and then you get something else. Like this movie's in Ohio for the vast majority of the screen time and it's in New Haven, Connecticut for Mm -hmm. some of the other. But I mean, the fact that this is like supposed to be a a poem or a lament for the hillbilly ancestral dead of the characters of the film, (laughs) like that is just, it's, it's not just a misnomer, but it's a pretentious misnomer, I would say, that I, I just... I just get thoroughly aggravated right from the start when those goods aren't delivered after the, you know, prologue. Yeah, no, it's it's a great point. So take that synopsis with a grain of salt. Um, we can say that all of these things are factually true, which I'll say Hillbilly Elegy stars an ensemble cast led by Amy Adams, Glenn Close, and Gabriel Basso. It is mm-hmm. written by Vanessa Taylor, and it is directed by Ron Howard. I've been doing real good. I just had a down month. I got an interview tomorrow, Mom. Otherwise, I... No, you know me. I always land on my feet. (laughs) Don't look at that. Come on. Come on. Don't you look at me. You look at me. 
You let her get away with this every time. I told you that I would do better. You always say that. You're and lying. I always try. You got to think about these kids. What do you think I've been thinking about since I was 18 years old, huh? Never had a life where I wasn't thinking about the kids. Do you actually want to be dead, Mom? Or are you just too lazy to try? Jenny, oh, I tried. Plenty. You've always got a reason. It's always someone else's fault. Some point, you're gonna have to take responsibility, or someone else is gonna have to step in. Who? Huh? Who? You? When Mike and I reviewed the trailer for this movie, we joked. We had the audacity to joke that they were going to center this movie on Gabriel Basso's J.D. Vance, which we thought would be the silliest, you know, decision. (laughs) Because we knew the memoir was based right. on him, right? And from his perspective. But we figured he was telling the story of Amy Adams or the story of Glenn Close, his Mima or his mother. And Vanessa Taylor was writing it, right? And she just wrote The Shape of Water, which was based on Sally Hawkins' character who fucks the fish. And dude, we thought that <laughs> 99% of the trailer, which was based on Amy Adams and Glenn Close, that had to affirm the fact that they, all right, they're pivoting. This is Hollywood. This is artistic license. They're pros this right they're gonna base the story on somebody appropriate they're not gonna make it a jd vance show oh ron howard made this a jd vance show though didn't he i mean that's a stupid decision yeah so as you mentioned this film is based on a memoir of the same name by the jd vance character he is um at least on the surface our protagonist you know, when the novel first came out, it sparked a lot of controversy. And mm. then that controversy also followed the film upon the subsequent release of the trailers. I actually didn't watch any of the trailers. Uh, I know you guys were a little negative on the trailers. Um, so your expectations were probably pretty low even then, you know, maybe optimistic in some way. But I'm assuming that once the critical consensus came out that was largely negative, your expectations dwindled even more. And, um, you know, I'm asking this question as if we already didn't criticize the movie in the intro. But now that you've finally seen the film, Mike, what are your overall thoughts on Hillbilly Elegy? My overall, you know, thesis question is what must this book be like? I I don't know if you I'm an avid audiobook listener, and that's dwindled a bit because I've become more of a podcast listener, having done MMO for a while and having made so many podcasting friends that are just I mean it literally is is cutting my audiobook listening by by a third yeah. at the very least so this was a book that they've been pushing like a I mean it is a, a worldwide bestseller and mm-hmm. it's definitely a, a New York Times and US bestseller for the longest time and I was tempted to buy it for the longest time but then I'm like I don't know memoirs are hit and miss but I I expected a story that worked so well on the page that it was probably going to work on the screen. And when you saw the talent involved here and the stakes uh, for a Glenn Close, for an Amy Adams, teaming up in their snubbedness, right? (laughs) Right, yeah. You figured that with Ron Howard, you know, directing and Vanessa Taylor again, you know, having written a, a Best Picture winner before, I figured... This was going to, you know, have a fighting chance, let's say. But what it ultimately becomes is a cautionary tale. And 
what not to do and how not to write a screenplay. And there's a myriad of reasons why. And we're going to talk about all of them. And yes, the performances save this movie a little bit and mm-hmm. elevate some of the drama on screen, but not enough, man. Yeah, I think this is an interesting bad movie because as you're saying, we can talk a lot about this and learn a lot about what not to do. And the Mm. weird thing is that there's actually parts of this movie that I think are pretty decent, like above the good performances, which I mean, you know, just good performances alone doesn't make a movie. So that's Mm -hmm. lesson number one, I guess. But there are certain parts of this movie that I think, you know, it's clear that there are some people who are good at their craft behind the camera. I mean, Ron Howard even at his worst movies have a a certain level of competency to them that they just sort of Mm -hmm. look solid and they kind of feel like movies um, in a way that sometimes when a a company releases a movie, it just looks like absolute trash or it doesn't make any sense or anything. And so I sort of see what they're going with here. There are moments in the script where you're like, oh, that's kind of a compelling idea. But ultimately, I found that when everything comes together, it doesn't amount to anything. And I think your tweet when you first saw that, was something along the lines of this is poverty porn or tragedy porn. It just like feels so, you know, useless or it doesn't amount to anything. So you just sort of watch it and you're like, why am I watching this? Um, But I didn't totally find it like one of the worst movies of the year. You know, I think there's a lot of people going around saying that. And I mean, all the power to the people who do say that. But, you know, I, I do think that there are parts here that could have been something interesting. But like you're saying, there's just not a story that amounts to anything. It should have been more nourishing than it was. And when you think about how Netflix marketed this and how they situated this movie during their Thanksgiving. (laughs) I mean, last last Thanksgiving, this was the Irishman spot, right? I mean, early December. I mean, this is a marquee spot for I don't know, Jingle Jangle. I know the Christmas Chronicles, too. Those are the family movies. But this film is supposed to be a four-quadrant movie for, I mean, adults. You have, you know, people in this cast that every single group of uh, Netflix watchers can gravitate towards because you have an older character as a mentor hero. You have Amy Adams as somebody, you know, trying to get right uh, in that, you know, that our age bracket. And then you have, you know, a movie that's based on a kid and based on a central character at various ages as well. So I just, it should be much more endearing and empathetic and relatable than it is. So where did you think the best parts of the movie came from was there a particular performance that you liked a particular moment in the film that was better than others and what was the reason for that yeah glenn close almost saves this movie and it's a herculean effort in my opinion (laughs) like she has a few jokes that are funny and this is a this is a painfully unfunny movie, like to the point where, you know, the, the main character is just is trying to be funny. It's almost like they pause for a laugh track or something with the score and it doesn't land and I'm cringing. What's supposed to be tension relief is just more tension for me because I'm a comedy snob as well as a film <laughs> snob, by the way. But uh, I like... In terms of the score, I found the score very manipulative, even though it's well-written and pleasant on the ears. But yeah. I just think of... I just think of all those movies in the 80, late 80s, early 90s that this film reminds me of that are just better done in the late 80s and 90s, like a What's Eating Gilbert Grape or even a Rambling Rose. Who I, have my, I have my issues with Rambling, Rambling Rose. That's better than this movie. The World According to Garp, uh, for example. Uh, I mean, this falls terribly short of those. And like I said 
earlier, I feel like this movie falls into the same trap of those movies that held those movies back. And in modern times, it's even more ridiculously apparent that a film like this should not be from the white male point of view, period, end of story. And if it's his memoir, I don't care. You have artistic license as movie uh, makers, and you can give the story to an arc that is more worthy of it. The grandmother's arc is more worthy of being, you know, uh, the, the focal point of this story. Amy Adams, for Christ's sake, Absolutely more worthy. Never mind the star power. Never mind the fact that you devoted 99% of your trailer (laughs) marketing this film to those characters and their performances. I mean, you get a glimpse of Gabriel Basso, which is why when Mike and I joked about it, we were like, no, they're not going to do that, right? They're not going (laughs) to focus this movie on the sun. This is an indication that they're going to focus this movie on Glenn Close and Amy Adams where it's supposed to be. You have to give a movie to... A willful character, if not the most willful character in Mm -hmm. your ensemble. You have to give your protagonist, you have to make your protagonist someone with a pronounced arc who goes from A to Z and A to Z is actually far apart where you, you, you have a character fighting for some stakes and yet J.D. Vance, who's already in Yale at the beginning, first scene of the story whose life is going to be okay, let's be honest. And even if he has some money troubles, I think there's a lot of businesses out there which would give this man a loan, being in Yale Law School. <laughs> so the, it's it's all BS, right, from the yeah. beginning, where you're like, this guy's going to be fine no matter what, and he's got some family baggage, he could deal with it, but it's just, good God, man. You know, let's center the story where it's supposed to be centered. Uh, we joked around, uh, my girlfriend and I, when we were watching this, that we were like, he's really, really concerned about all these in you know interviews to get a summer internship and he proposes this thing like you know if he doesn't get these interviews then he's fucked but like you're a law student at yale like literally the best law school in the country which good for you jd vance but in so far as us being concerned that anything's going to happen here no you're you're completely fine and that's something that's sort of weird about this movie too that like i I say that it's a poverty porn movie but it's also Mm. not good poverty porn I don't know no. if that makes sense. Like, <laughs> like you know, okay, let's accept that the movie's poverty porn. There are some movies that, while still being manipulative, are relatively interesting. But here, it's it's sort of just like things are happening around him. He's never really in peril. There's the one moment where it sort of seems like maybe he's going down the wrong road, which I think they, you know, if they wanted to focus around Gabriel Paso, maybe change the elements of the story to be a little less true to his memoir but like give us some stakes that oh no maybe this kid is actually going to be in trouble or something like this but more often than not it's all the characters around him that are kind of quote-unquote doing the bad things and then he kind of just whines at them and so that also like it also kind of takes away the agency of those characters where you don't really understand why they're doing it it kind of just feels like they're doing it because that's their nature or something which becomes even more problematic and starts getting into all of these ideas of like is he getting yeah. out because he's better than these people? All of this crap. So I just found that the movie really didn't work because there was, like you're saying, no arc for the J.D. Vance character. And the characters that sort of did have arcs, they didn't focus on. Even manipulative films can – where you can justify the means of the empathy machine that yeah. a good script and a good film could be. Like you can gain insights in a monster's ball – 
to what Halle Berry and her son is are going are going through in that film, what Billy Bob Thornton and his son Heath Ledger are going through in that film, and even though both of these stories are a bit of sensationalist, you can relate because the story is bending over backwards to make you relate. But when you have a central character in this movie who just mansplains over the top and literally yells over the top of his yelling crazy family, not, you know, I mean, my family's kind of crazy too, <laughs> so I, I don't want to totally generalize, but good God, man. I mean, it's, it's a gross mishandling of the subject matter and the themes at stake because there's just this lack of empathy and this lack of insight, especially when they're dealing with serious issues of addiction and mental illness. So if I, I'm going to get serious at, at some point in this episode because unfortunately, I've had close experiences, close life experiences with heroin addiction, with that in my family. I mean, we've had those demons up close that I've had to deal with in my past. And I'm very grateful that, you know, my, my family member, uh, my loved one has come out of it. But man, it was a, a, a living nightmare for like a five year span. And this movie doesn't understand no. <laughs> any of that. And I, and I'm not gonna, I don't want to make myself out to be, I understand it more, but the, I just feel like you have to go in with a humility Right. If you're if you're doing a, a, a story where you haven't had that personal experience, you bet it better be an exploration and then you better be empathetic towards all your characters. You, you can't just yell at them. Right. I mean, right. The, this protagonist literally just yells at his mother, yells at his grandmother. Yeah. And I mean, so, right. It's, it's going back to the whole idea that the story is only interested in how the decisions of the other characters affect our main character. Yeah. So we don't it, actually it's indulgent. Yeah. We don't actually care. Or I mean, I guess the, I should say the movie doesn't actually care about how Amy Adams is ha handling her addiction. It doesn't yeah. matter. The only thing we care about is how her addiction is affecting J.D. Vance's character. And I guess, mm -hmm. you know, from a memoir perspective, since this is based off of a memoir, that that sort of makes sense. You know, he wasn't his mom, so he only knows how it affected him. But the film doesn't explore that in any meaningful way. All it basically does is say, wow, doesn't it suck that this kid's mom is yeah. a drug addict? And it's like, yeah, it does. But what now? Well, what are you trying to say about that? And I guess what this movie is maybe trying to say a little bit is that, I mean, the only thing I can think of is that it's saying the most basic idea, which is that family sucks sometimes. And it's like, yeah. okay, I know <laughs> everybody with a family knows that. So like, why are you putting us through this? Why are you wasting our time with this? If all you're here to say is that like, you know, sometimes it sucks to be with a family, but you still love your family. It's like, that's literally the most basic thing you can say. It's a highlight reel of all of the yeah. worst scenes of this man's life. And I hope the, the memoir actually dives into the mother's backstory and the grandmother's backstory right. and that he has hundreds of pages in which to do that research of his family tree. And it works differently in a novel or in a, in a, on the page than it can work on the screen because you need that economy of focus on the screen. That's why I, I say it is the... The, the largest mistake here is giving uh, the Basso character, the J.D. Vance character, the movie. Mm -hmm. And if they if they centered this movie on the grandmother as a mentor hero or on Amy Adams' life uh, as a junkie, I mean, obviously, it's a totally different movie. It doesn't have the four-quadrant appeal, perhaps, or at least the, uh, in theory as an attempt. 
but it doesn't anyway with, <laughs> with the execution of this. So it, it, it really is a, a mishandling and a mismanagement of this story. And I'm, I'm going to do a lot of script doctoring here uh, for good reason, because it is a, a cautionary tale of what not to, to effing do, you know? <laughs> so let's go ahead and shift gears a little bit here and talk about what is probably the most interesting part of the movie, which is Thank God. the <laughs> it is the Glenn Close <laughs> and the Amy Adams of it all. So I know you guys at Mike, Mike and Oscar are huge Glenn Close fans, not just yep. because she's an amazing actor, but also because she is a Connecticut gal. So uh, when did this fandom start? Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that? So one of the first episodes we did on Mike, Mike and Oscar was a retrospective on Fatal Attraction. And uh, it's okay. like one of our first five episodes or something. So that kind of cemented it from Mike and I's podcasting lives. But I think both of us became fans. And I think we chose that retrospective early on because of her performance in Fatal Attraction. And it was an all-timer for us. But uh I, if I if I backtrack in my own brain to when I was you know be, when I became aware of Glenn Close, embarrassingly I have to admit it's 101 Dalmatians because <laughs> I was 12 and that's probably the first time I'm, I'm glad I didn't watch Glenn Close movies before that because some of them are kind of intense. But as I got into my teens, like Mars Attacks was a fun movie from Tim Burton, Air Force One. Well, I think that was a trip between me and all my friends to the to the movies, and Glenn Close was pretty great in that. Uh, but I didn't really get the sense that she was like an all timer actress until years later when I was in school and in film school there with perhaps I don't know uh, 102 Dalmatians. No, <laughs> <laughs> stupid joke. I wrote that joke. I spent a lot of time crafting it, but I, I don't know. No, if I appreciate it. Anyway, no, Fatal I love Attraction. The 101 Dalmatian movies too. So I did right. She's great in those and 102 Dalmatians, but Fatal Big Attraction. Big shoes, Emma Stone. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, well, Paul Walter Hauser's our guy, and he's going to be in yeah. there. So yeah, they they got a good cast for that. I just, I hope it comes to theaters and not just Disney Plus. But anyway, I mean, Fatal Attraction, Dangerous Liaisons. Uh, when you get into the Glenn Close filmography, those are the two that really stand out, kind of for her thirties and 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 maybe forties. There, I don't know how old she is, which is a testament to her. But uh, the Lion in Winter, where where she plays the the mother, the queen character. As a TV movie is incredible. Mike, one, is a huge fan of damages. I mean, he's a lawyer and that's a lawyer show. So that if, I, if I'm speaking for him, that's probably where, you know, he just fell in love mm -hmm. with her acting abilities. But like for me, I appreciate her as someone who's always good. And she's always good in any movie you see her in. I've saw seen some bad films like this one. <laughs> the Girl yeah. with All the Gifts, Crooked House, which is a whodunit on Amazon Prime right now. Cookie's Fortune, which I'm sorry, I'm not a fan of, even though I know the director's a big deal. The Paper, I'm up and down on The Paper, but these are the non-Oscar-nominated Glenn Close roles, and she's as good, if not better, than Mimo in all of those. So she's always, I mean, she has that standard of quality with each one of her performances, whether they're snubbed or not. And then when she knocks something out of the park, and you, Mike and I spend a whole award season gushing over her performance in The Wife couple years back and she brings her dog to the indie spirits we're, we're fans for life we're fans for life the fact that she's from connecticut and we can bio her in one of our first episodes and love her then and love her now yeah i know there's a lot of snippiness between her and meryl streep fans and we got like this little rivalry with the academy queens another oscar podcast about <laughs> glenn close versus olivia coleman glenn close versus meryl streep and it's fun but you know we we love glenn close for her 
for her abilities, man. I mean, she's proven it time and again. Yeah, I remember that award ceremony or the award season between Glenn Close and Olivia yeah. Coleman, and I was such a fan of Olivia Coleman in The Favorite that like I was rooting for her, and that was also, I believe, mm-hmm. the first season of The Crown. And so yes. I was really in love with Olivia Coleman at the time. And so I loved when she kind of did the upset at the Academy's uh, mm-hmm. Awards and got the win above Glenn Close. And then it was only after when I believe I talked to you guys about it at some point randomly when, when you were like, no, we're actually very big Glenn Close fans. And I was like, oh, my God, yes. I'm so sorry. But um, yeah, she's a great performer. And I think, you know, it's kind of absurd that she doesn't have an Oscar um, yet. And I, I guess for my listeners who are probably not quite as in tune with the Oscars, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about the idea of like the the overdue Oscar and kind of yeah. the idea of getting an Oscar for not necessarily the performance that you deserve, more so kind of just as an acknowledgement Oscar and yeah. whether there's any chance of that occurring for this particular performance. It happens all the time, to be frank. Uh, Martin Scorsese and The Departed, even though I love that movie, it was a formative film in, in my college years, you know, I, I don't think you can say it's better than Goodfellas, right? I mean, I don't think you can say Black Klansman's script is better than the Do the Right Thing script right. for Spike Lee finally getting his Oscar then. I don't think that Leonardo DiCaprio's performance in The Revenant is half the performance that he gives in The Wolf of Wall Street or even uh, The Aviator. Again, just putting apples to apples there. Uh, yeah, he froze his ass off in The Revenant, so I give him credit for the production story. But <laughs> He ate a horse or whatever. So Yeah, this happens all the time, seemingly. And I think everybody looked at this Glenn Close performance on the heels of The Wife, which is probably a winner in most other years. And I, like you, had the favorite in Olivia Coleman's performance as my number one that year. But I was still saying and high-fiving Mike on the side when she won the Globe, when she <laughs> yeah. won. Because I love Glenn Close. And we were kind of team MMO with uh, the fandom there. And I was almost like, okay, if either one of them win, I'll be happy. But I was, you know, uh, look, Mike basically thought Glenn Close was his grandma and took that one personally, <laughs> especially when Olivia Coleman gave her loopy kind of half-drunken speech yeah. when she got up there. Even My if it bitches, was just punch drunk. Yeah. <laughs> so Mike, Mike thought that was like almost borderline disrespectful when uh, when she won instead of Glenn Close. And, and, and then, of course, the meme of Glenn Close wincing when she, she didn't get yeah. picked. All of that just adds to it and why we've had such a uh, – you know, fun relationship with Academy Queens after the fact. But uh, it, it it is something that happens so many times throughout Oscar history, and it frustrates the hell out of Mike and I. But it's also kind of fun. And I guess the sports analogy is, you know, the person that gets, you know, put into the Pro Bowl the year after his best season or put into the All-Star game the year after his best season. The delayed recognition happens a lot. And you, you don't always have the Daniel Day-Lewis as Abraham Lincoln performance that's just so undeniable right. and so unmatched and, you know, just the, the no-brainer where you can uh, you can just give them the Oscar. So the, the fact that we're even having this conversation now about Glenn Close in this ridiculous movie is a testament to her abilities and to her career. Yeah, so, I mean, there is some precedence to a critically panned movie getting some of the acting nominations or even a win. Um, you know, for example, the one that comes to mind pretty quickly is Rami Malek from Bohemian Rhapsody. But even that film sits at 60%, which is, yeah. you know, almost three times as much as this film, which I believe now is at 25%. Uh, and that's also, you know, a film about 
one of the most legendary, iconic singers of the last, you know, century or whatever. So there's a lot mm -hmm. of other factors into that. So is there a possibility here for a Glenn Close nomination or even a win in such kind of an, an open and weird year? Possibility? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> I'm going to put my foot down, though, and say that this movie should not <laughs> be nominated anywhere. I Look, I love Woody Harrelson. I loved when he gave, you know, gave LBJ a try. And I loved when Tom Hardy tried to play... Al, Al Capone this earlier this year yeah. and I love those go for it performances but this is a caricature no matter how many you know pictures of the real Mima you show online this is a caricature performance and yes Glenn Close elevates it but I don't think this should be what wins her the Oscar no I just don't just get away from this movie and you're right. I mean, we've seen Rami Malek and even Willem Dafoe and Vincent Van Gogh as just two recent examples of performances that have kind of gone beyond the critical reception of the of their films. And in fact, those movies, when we were covering them, they had low tomato meter scores. And eventually, late later, after the fact, those those scores went up. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody was a low score for a while. Yeah. Well, definitely, uh, At Eternity's Gate was very low, and that's since gone up to like high sixties. I think the biggest example is Roman J. Israel Esquire with Denzel Washington getting the Best Actor nomination. Those scores are still low. 58 Metascore, 54% on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, Denzel's unequivocally just excellent in that movie, and I think that story kind of fails him more than anything else, and Colin Farrell kind of fails him as a bad guy. He's a terrible bad guy. I don't know why he can't do it, but... Uh, not a fan this... of him in uh, Fantastic Beasts, either. Oh, no. not a... Fantastic Beasts, I'm just not a fan of, unfortunately. Yeah. But, I mean, Hillbilly Elegy, I mean, I don't know if you were an Entourage fan growing up, but this is Vincent Chase, Chase's Medi Ian. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is a big, fat, stinking dumpster fire that just should not be awards-worthy. I think... <laughs> As much as we wanted to have you on MMO this week, you know, to do that crossover with the Oscars conversation there. I mean, at the end of the day, there's just not a real Oscars conversation. And the pundits are actually starting to take their cues from the audiences on this one. I mean, once all of the scores came out, the critics and the audiences, once those scores came out and people have been crushing it on film Twitter in particular, uh, you have seen Glenn Close fall out of a lot of top fives on Gold Derby. Uh, with all the main pundits uh, on the Feinberg forecast, she was like one. Now she's five, so she, she's fallen back, and she's not going to be in it. You're uh, when when you wrote, I read what you said about the uh, Vincent Chase meta Ian, and it made me laugh. Um, <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I, I appreciated that. Story. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're pretty certain, not even a nomination for Glenn Close. Is there any different story about Amy Adams? She's another one that is consistently overlooked. Um, and is kind of well-deserving of an Oscar at this point. You're shaking your head. No, over my dead body. Okay. I mean, her character is putting on a <laughs> clinic in character assassination. I mean, really. Yeah. I mean, the, you hate her character, and you should not hate a drug addict character in any movie. I mean, think about Requiem for a Dream, right. and think about all of the great movies on that subject. Even something like Beautiful Boy with Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet. That missed the mark. Don't get me wrong. I'm not praising Beautiful Boy as something that got it exactly right, but you care about those people, and I can't tell you how many texts I got from Mike One when he was watching this movie. He's like, why? And he tweeted his out as, as well the other day. Like, Amy Adams' character is someone that you just don't care. You don't 
need to see succeed. You don't need to see redeem. She is not Naomi Harris from Moonlight. She is not putting on that, or she's not paid that level of respect in the script. She is shown to be this nightmarish villain. And that's the kind of the tragedy of this in respect and in, you know, compa- by comparison with her son's character. And that's that's terrible. That's a terrible job by the filmmakers lacking any sense of empathy there. The Naomi Harris comparison is a really good comparison. I thought about that as well. Um, just yeah. like I remember in that movie and I've only seen Moonlight once, but it's really telling that I remember this so well is that, you know, she plays the mother character who is by all accounts, nasty to her son mm-hmm. in, in certain ways. And and you you experience the struggle that I think this movie is trying to get at, which is like this idea of wanting to love your parents, but also kind of hating them and sort of like wanting to be there for them, but also knowing that you can't be for them because they're destructive. And you're right. The, the Amy Adams character has no empathy behind her other than the fact that she's Amy Adams. So on some level, you're like, well, I like Amy Adams. But again, this goes back to the whole film kind of like taking away the struggle of the characters who are actually struggling and using that to just paint this tragic picture for the one character who we're kind of supposed to care about. So, um, yeah, I guess we kind of just shifted a little bit from the acting back into (laughs) shitting on the movie. But um, so it seems like as far as you're concerned, no hillbilly elegy at the Oscars whatsoever. Please, God, no. No, absolutely not. Thank you very much. So what happens if in some weird random chance, this is the movie that Glenn Close is finally recognized for? What happens, Mike? Can you sleep at night? No, what happens is Mike one wins the argument because, <laughs> I, look, I, I've i seen a lot of strong movies this year, better than average movies this year, silver lining level films, indie films that wouldn't be in the awards conversation. But from all the texts I've gotten, you guys know this, he's on the record with all our podcasts where he's like, maybe we don't need the Oscars this year. Or maybe they should delay it a little further yeah. because if we don't have films that are on the level – why do we ha- why are we forced to award them i mean and don't get me wrong he has not said that the oscars will be canceled or should be canceled he knows the interweavings of the business he understands abc's you know deals with the academy and with the oscars and how those need to happen so he's not saying that the oscars are going to get canceled but he does tend to think that maybe we don't quite have the field that we we need to have right now and maybe we have to put more of an onus on these studios cuz the studio slates are very clear. I mean, they have one or two contenders apiece, but they usually have five to seven contenders apiece. And that's just mm-hmm. not the case. Everything got bumped. Yes, streamers like Netflix are making up for some of that. But like this would be the beneficiary of a, of a weaker field, this movie. And it would cement Mike's argument against me and therefore i cannot have it and if i have any influences upon it i need to put my foot down here and say over my dead body should this movie be nominated for an oscar any oscar i'm sorry it's just that disqualifyingly bad and I know that's an adverb i don't think could work but it, i need to say it. <laughs> totally totally fair um this is not on our prep document but since i have you here i'm just curious what your thoughts are so i'm gonna put you on the spot um do you think this is the year that Netflix gets the best picture win, given that so many of their films are the ones that are being talked about? Netflix and best picture have been the two most elusive subjects yeah. 
thus far. I thought they were going to pull the international film double that with Roma the year before Parasite did it. Mm -hmm. And although I do think their slate is by far the strongest of anybody's out there, and they may set a record with like four or five Best Picture nominations this year, I do wonder if they're going to come through and actually win the thing. And it I don't know. They don't have an undeniable favorite. I mean, does Mank win by default? And right. we'll be studying that and those chances coming up. Does Ma Rainey's Black Bottom surprise some people? Does, you know, I mean, even though that's seemingly a performance piece at this moment, uh, does the trial of, you know, the Chicago 7 just be that typical Academy pick at the end of the right. day? I don't know. It all. De- I mean, it's it's a comparative process, right? I mean, is News of the World from Universal, a big studio, something that people pick? Does the new Academy go for a, a Me Too statement picture, a, a fantasy horror revenge story like Promising Young Woman, and we get a badass Best Picture this year <laughs> because we can't necessarily get you know the, the the polished big studio Hollywood film that we usually got, or do we get? Like a film festival movie that's able to build a grassroots campaign for long enough, like a Nomad Land, like a One Night in Miami, that I think are good for the soul and very nourishing, and they're like vegetables in, in many ways, yeah. but typically don't necessarily break through for movie of the year, uh, best picture, of which of course that is. So it, it really is uh, uh, the the category that's vexed me the most. Man, I mean, I'm a, I'm doing this. Two, three times a week, year round, for this is my fourth year, and I have yet to get Best Picture right. (laughs) And the whole reason I got into kind of the whole predictions business in the Oscar podcast was like, I was predicting Best Picture every year amongst my friends via email, etc. And once we start a podcast on the Oscars, I am 0 for 3. (laughs) It's terrible. Well, if this conversation interests you, definitely check out Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Um, I'm going to be tuning in as the award season rolls up and um, well thank you but i got 20 out of 24 last year I, I'll, I'll, humble brag. I'll humble brag about that but i didn't i didn't listen to the to the logic of my brain about parasite and i screwed that one up yeah again i mean i do very you know uneducated predictions um just like between amongst my friends or whatever and i yeah. also did not get parasite so um you and i were the same basically you you podcast about it four times a week i <laughs> read some articles and tweets but we're the same. <laughs> I hang my head in no, no offense. Shame for <laughs> the fact that I can't get best picture right. It's just it's it, I like I I will substitute getting best picture right with with a with a respectable margin elsewhere. Like if I get yeah. fifteen out of twenty four right this year, fine. I just need to get best picture. Everyone knows the real prognosticating is in documentary short. So if you got that one right, then then you're good. I'm more prepared than ever for documentary short this year, though. Uh, interesting. FYI. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's go ahead and um, move on to spoilers here and talk a little bit about kind of the ending and where the characters ultimately end up. Um, before we do that, Mike, why don't you just summarize your thoughts on the film a little and give a score out of 10? So... My score out of 10 is probably a, a 6 out of 10, and five of those points go to Glenn Close, <laughs> and one of those points maybe goes to uh, Haley Bennett, and you know the, the minus four is due to the script. I just, I just hate this script with a passion of a, a thousand suns. Like I said, I, you know, I've had 
close family that have gone through the ringer with this. And, you know, I, I've watched from afar for some of the time, but coming out of college, still living at home, having to deal with that. I mean, yeah, some of these scenes play out in a similar way, but those never worked for, you know, my family. And then that's why this movie seems just inauthentic. So it's like, all right, the insights they think they have, at least in my experience, are dead wrong because you can't just shame and guilt trip away these problems, especially of addiction. I mean, it truly is a disease that requires a myriad of, you know, measures uh, medically, psychologically, you know, with, with social and family support groups. Uh, and, and then you, you got to get lucky. You got to get the chemicals out of your system for long enough. And my God, is it an involved process that this country is still painfully screwing up in terms of how they understand the epidemic of opiates right now. So it's something that's hit me hard that, again, you know, try not to take the high road for much of this, but when a movie like this fails to understand it so blatantly, and then when a movie like this is trying to grab for Academy Awards, I'm just like in FU mode. And that's going to be the spoiler section, folks. So I'm not going to get into the sob story the rest of the way, but I am in FU mode for the spoiler section. <laughs> all right. All right. So 60 uh, or 6 out of 10 is kind of like like a D in, in your rating system, correct? It is a D, yeah. sir. Yes. Yeah. So um, I'd be right around there with you, uh, something like a 6 out of 10. Uh, there's a lot of actors doing capital A acting here, and the performances are showy. They do go too over the top to become caricatures. I agree with you. But there's a little there, I guess, in terms of, you know, quality acting. Like, it's good actors doing something. But other than that, I mean, I just think this film has no pacing. It has no end game. It has nothing that it really ultimately wants to say other than family be like that. Um, We... (laughs) We end up just putting up with so much bad and you never really ultimately get anything good that comes out of it. So Hmm. while it's not, in my opinion, a completely unwatchable film, it's not a film that I would recommend and it's not a film that I ever need to watch again. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) So if you haven't seen this movie, uh, we are not recommending you to go see it so that you can listen to the spoiler section. I would say listen to the spoiler section anyways. We're going to dunk on this movie a little bit and talk about why the ending doesn't work just as much as the rest of the movie doesn't work. But um, let's go ahead before that and take a break here. And when we return, we'll hop into spoilers. Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. So we're back and talking about spoilers for Hillbilly Elegy starting now. That's my secret, Kat. I'm always angry.
also thought the ending of this film was really kind of weird where mm. he, after confronting his mom about the heroin addiction, kind of just leaves. And I don't totally <laughs> understand what the resolution there is. Like, what does he realize in that moment at the end of the film that he didn't know at the beginning of the film? It kind of feels like we're in the exact same position as we were when he was at Harvard or whatever, Yale, at the start of the film. He has this life. It's separate from his family, but it still seems like he's willing to go back every now and then and just help out like he does in the beginning of this film. So, like, I don't understand what he learns there. I don't understand how we're supposed to understand that after what has happened in this film, now the mother is going to be clean for the, you know, the next three years, which I mean is great. I'm very happy that she is, but there's nothing in the film that makes me think that she learned anything. There's nothing that makes me think that uh, Gabriel Basso's character learned anything. What are what are we supposed to feel here? Do you have any insight, or is it just trash? I I actually unfortunately have a little insight here because you know I I think it's offensively ignorant that this step in the journey, especially the addict's journey, that does have a lot in common with with other addicts out there, uh, with all addicts out there in a way, because there is a point in in most people's stories. And certainly in my personal experience with a family member where you do need to turn your back on them. And it comes at the end of a very long, uh, heartbreaking, uh, you know, several years in my case uh, situation with not just one situation where you find needles or you find. I mean, dude, that that happens all the effing time, at least with me, it did. And none of the big shouting matches worked. You can't yell at the addict and, and, and get them right by the, your force of will. I mean, it's just so effing arrogant that this character thinks that he can take the needle away and then yell at the mother and you were never a good mother and oh, here's all the flashbacks to prove it and, and then you're, you know, fast forward to her being clean in the, you know, the, the epilogue title cards or whatever you call those, those cards at the end. Yeah. I mean, that's BS. I'm sure Haley Bennett's character did the heavy lifting, was the right. support group for the mother more than this asinine son ever was, at least according to the movie character. And again, I don't want to pass judgment on J.D. Vance's character or J.D. Vance's real life experience. Maybe it wasn't this just uh, expedited version, this comically cliched expedited version that really makes no sense. Uh, in, in the grand picture of it all, because uh, like I said at the end of this non-spoiler section, there are a lot of solutions out there. There's a lot of support groups. There's a lot of great medical personnel, psychologists. I mean, there's so many heroes in this fight that I've come across that that my family and I will just bow down to and worship because of how much they've helped a loved one and how much they've bent over backwards to just help this person feels supported and we've tried to follow suit and we've made a million mistakes, don't get me wrong, along the way. You can't just turn your back on the person and then that's, all right, tough love, pick you up by your bootstraps, you could do it yourself because you achieve sobriety, you achieve, fuck you, you achieve it. <laughs> it's, that's the biggest bullshit of this whole whole movie and why I'm offended by it at the end of the day and I don't like you know, morally objecting in my film criticism all the time. But this is a movie that uniquely pissed me off in that regard. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I, it, it's, um, it, I think it comes down just again to that this movie is not at all interested in exploring addiction other than no. the most surface level 
implication that it's bad for the people around the addict. Um, and like, it's an understatement right. of the century. <laughs> right. On. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess I just, I don't totally understand what the film is trying to say that JD learned in that moment or in the events of this, this film. And I think maybe part of that is because they've kind of tried to take this huge memoir and narrow it yeah. down into, you know, a digestible story. But um, yeah, there's really nothing here in terms of a lesson, even if we look past the addiction, if that makes sense. It's also antithetical. I don't know if I use that word right to the <laughs> centerpiece of the film, because the centerpiece of the film is the flashback with Glenn Close's mentor hero relationship with her grandson mm-hmm. walking out of that hospital like a badass and taking him away from the horrible mother and getting that kid on the on the right road, turning over the new leaf. And those scenes in terms of a story arc work better, even though I would agree with you. I think you re- I read somewhere that you, you don't think those stories, that those scenes really work. And I, again, you know, nothing works in this movie, so I agree. <laughs> but the problem is... That's your centerpiece. That's your central crisis where the boy's dilemma is go with the grandmother or continue to go down the wrong path. And the boy chooses the right path. And it's not easy from there. The grandmother has to still put her foot down another dozen times to get him right. But that's like at the heart of this story. And if you're going to say, all right, those are the hillbilly family values and that stuff is important and, and that pays that that honors the the family as a loving family even though the love is tough love and they don't have a sh- shit ton of wisdom behind it because the terminator speech is kind of dumb like just <laughs> re- and reductive just saying good terminators bad terminators neutral good people bad people and different people fuck you that's idiotic people could be those three things in the span of a minute's time like right. i always am like you always are everybody is so it's a complete and total, you know, ignorant misunderstanding of the human condition right there in your central speech given by your mentor <laughs> hero. So that's a problem. But to get to my point finally here, Marty, the end of the film, when he turns his back on the mother, yeah, that's a necessary point in addiction because you can only enable them so far. And there is that heart-wrenching point where, yeah, they're gone and you're worried about getting a call that they OD'd. You know, for for years. I mean, that was a y- y- several year, two year period for me in my life. Uh, and after I got out there, and I still thought I was getting that phone call anytime because my back had to be turned. I couldn't enable this person any longer. And yeah. I, I got. I mean, look, I, that, that that's that's a part. That's the wrong crescendo of the film, and that's antithetical to what Glenn Close did for the grandson. It's the opposite of what Glenn yeah. <laughs> Close did for the grandson, what the son does to the mother. Dude, what are we doing? Yeah, yeah, I I, I don't know. I mean, that's <laughs> it, a really good point. And it, the, the weird thing is that the movie is almost so unaware that it's being antithetical because it, it is showing all the good things and again i I wish there was a word for that maybe we should just make up one where like it always happens at the end of a biopic right where like yeah and they live happily ever after or you know in the case of the chicago seven he was hit the guy played by jerry rubin was killed in a car crash but like it's just like jesus anyways um but whatever that is all of those things are positive the Haley bennett character she's happily married with her husband of 12 years and JD and um, the Frida Pinto character are married and they have kids and, and all of this stuff. So it seems like what he did 
was the right thing, but I don't understand what that message is. And then there's a whole other wrinkle that we haven't really talked about of this, and maybe you know we're not the best people to talk about this, but just the idea that this film kind of supports this false idea of a meritocracy in America yeah. where you get out of the situations if you work hard and you're good. And that completely ignores all the systematic problems with that part of the country and the entire country where it's like, especially people who are not in this movie at all, like people of color um, are systematically oppressed. But this whole idea that JD was all he had to do was be worthy of getting out and then turning his back on his family. I, I, I guess I just, I don't understand what the main takeaway of this movie is in that regard. And I don't think the movie does either. I think the movie leaves itself open for that misunderstanding by not communicating properly and by kind of leaning into the poverty porn Mm -hmm. instead of trying to empathize with these characters and understand these characters. And maybe that again, maybe the memoir does it as much, but it doesn't work here at all. We both just said like we, I mean, we have a flat character. The antagonist is flat. Amy Adams is a flat one-dimensional character who we do not understand in the least, whose life we we are we are shown in all of these horrific examples. Like even when she has a glimmer of a smile, the you know, thirty seconds later, she's screaming at her her daughter, saying she's going to kill the dog, like in the Easter egg scene or in the sports store. Then she's stealing the cards and then she's, you know, you have that huge domestic issue in terms of like the the controversy, though. I, I just think it's almost it's not worthy of controversy. <laughs> this film is so bad that, you know, I, I, I think you almost look at it and you're like race shouldn't be brought into this or if it is, I understand it. Like criticize this movie for everything. It's just almost piling on at this point. And I, I, I get why if these are the theme – if the themes of the movie are the themes of the book, then yeah, I would say this is a racist fucking story because <laughs> to think that, you know, the – I mean, look, uh, let's be honest. I mean, the 80s and the 90s, just statistically, this, this problem, the opiate problem hit the black community extremely hard in those, in those time periods – and they've only hit the white community later in mass, just talking in general gen- generalizations. And I don't like to talk in those generalizations, but to, yeah, to see other films like this and to compare apples to apples, this film taking the staunch mansplaining, I'm going to yell this problem away and achieve this mm-hmm. because I, uh, as a man, as a white man who went to Yale, I achieved this. Fuck. <laughs> Those people, man. I mean, it, not only is it wrong and ignorant, but it's completely missing the point of this crisis. And uh, you wrote all over this doc, and I don't know if you you really haven't been able to lean into it yet. But the Haley Bennett character is the MVP of this movie, yeah. and most and most likely, it's not the son. It's the Haley Bennett who has to day in and day out deal with all this. Yeah, well, and so I think that's that's the problem with the script and the the whole meritocracy part of it is that it, it almost poses that like it's almost like Haley Bennett is the Ben Affleck character in Goodwill Hunting, where she's only there to 
support the Matt Damon character because he's the one that's the gifted and brilliant mathematician. So he can get out yeah. of Southie Boston. In this case, it's JD can get out of the South. But like, yeah, everything that is keeping the family together is this Haley Bennett character. And they, the film and maybe the memoir does, I highly doubt it, but the film certainly mm. doesn't grapple with the idea that like, why is Haley Bennett's character the one that gets everything put on her? And I think maybe part of that is that, like, you know, Haley Bennett's character was not taken in by the grandmother, right? And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. maybe the grandmother kind of pushed JD in the right direction or whatever. But I don't think the film does a good enough job exploring that or posing that JD was ever, you know, doomed to go down a bad path, um, especially because we see that he already is in Yale, as you said at the beginning. So I don't know. I, I just think that it, it really poorly handles the whole Haley Bennett character who like you're saying is the the unsung hero and also just the character that might feel like the most interesting character because the other thing right is that she at least as far as we know from the film is not an addict she's seems like a good mother she's you know she's there for her mother she's there for her kids so like her life is doing well basically but it's not you know, a success like quote unquote JD's is in the film. And it's just, uh, I don't know. It's, it's That's messy. the thing. She's got all the egg on her face throughout yeah. the movie. It's because she failed because she has the family that she's at the end of a rope with her mother and she can't do anymore. And this is understandable in this crisis. <laughs> and look, if I haven't been clear up till now, I mean, I have played a supporting role in my family's support for my family members issue with addiction. And my mother was the one who played the lead role and the heroic role. And on top of everything going on in her life, she was the one that that was first and foremost had to deal with and put up with the most stuff. And she's she would be the hero of the story. So if I was telling the story of my family member, I would center it on my mother, not myself. And the fact right. that I was at arm's length for for much of the drama, for much of the real life issue here. So this is the son Telling that, I mean, he only eavesdropped in a couple of times, at least in this story, as far as we're concerned. And Haley Bennett, is, in his memory, is shown to be the, you know, snotty teenager, 32 year old woman playing right. a 16 year old, which is always a problem. Yeah, that was absurd. It's always a load of shit. <laughs> yeah, and so that, that can't work, no matter how good of an actress she is. And she is a great actress. She's doing great work across the board. It's not her fault. Florence Pugh couldn't play Amy March on A Little Women either. So, again, <laughs> not Haley Bennett's fault there but it's it's preposterous and kind of silly that she has to play 16 for 30 minutes of this movie and she is just shown with egg on her face the whole time like she's the one causing more problems in the hospital room and she's the one saying i've had it up to here and you know you better talk to the receptionist at the at the clinic yeah uh because you have the you know can you give me a break he he fails every step of the way as well and maybe they're trying they were they were going for you know, something a little more nuanced with that by including those scenes where he does fail also. But the fact that he gets the, the big scene at the end where he wrestles the needle away from her is showing like he's the heroic champion. And that's where we leave it? No, I'm sorry. That didn't work in my life. It doesn't probably didn't work for anybody uh, out there. That's not the rock bottom moment for an addict that's raging and, and, and addicting, uh, addicted to the level where they OD and then they have to use the next day. I mean, uh, shit. 
that is that is a point where the addiction is out of control and it needs to be treated folks it needs to be treated at that point we need to understand it as a disease at that point if, if at any point because that's a danger zone we're coming off the, uh, the 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 overdose so christ almighty to show that in the film is and to show that the pick yourself up by your bootstraps moment of the film is that particular scene that's irresponsible because it's just perpetuating the misunderstanding it's bullshit at the end of the day. And I keep coming back to that, but this movie is just morally reprehensible and it's, it's total bullshit. Yeah, so I think we can end it with saying that um, not all memoirs should become <laughs> movies. And maybe you don't even need to write the memoir, but if this helped this man figure out his shit or whatever, good for him. I don't think that it necessarily needed to be made into a movie. Certainly not uh, a big budget Oscar contender. But uh, with that, let's go ahead and move on to our point two section where we talk about some of the other stuff that we've been watching. Mike, what have you been watching? Okay, so I have crushed another Netflix movie and I need to big up Netflix because they have saved my entire year (laughs) and they have saved my month of entertainment watching. So as much as I hated Rebecca and I hate Hillbilly Elegy and hate is a strong word, but I do legitimately (laughs) hate these movies as I tried to prove today. Let me say this. Shit's Creek as a binge watch is mwah, chef's kiss. There, there are probably 20 episodes that I am in love with, never mind love, as a film critic. As a, I mean, I'm just addicted to that. I'm binge watching that show hard right now. I'm in season five and loving it. Uh, and then the last two weekends, man, I watched The Crown last weekend. I, I want to rewatch the show because I, I watched it so fast. Saturday into Sunday doing all my laundry at home with COVID, I, <laughs> I binge watched The Crown. And then the weekend before that, it was The Queen's Gambit. And my God, you got to get through the first episode of The Queen's Gambit because the first episode isn't great, for, at Thank least you. in my opinion. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I loved, I mean, as a sports movie, as a, as a sports guy, I just, oh my God, I loved it so much. It was just that, that type of show that you want to live in. And then I'm probably going to want to revisit like the crown. I mean, these are so good. I mean, it's almost like earlier in the year when succession and, and Watchmen, and you had some really strong shows that were coming out from, from HBO, especially and uh, prestige TV at its finest and Netflix is just either acquiring it with Shit's Creek as an Emmy winner, as an Emmy juggernaut, and then lately with The Crown and The Queen's Gambit. I'm just so thrilled for them. I mean, they deserve their 193 million subscribers or whatever they have because <laughs> of shows like that. Because That's the peak of peak TV right now. The Crown, Queen's Gambit, those kind of shows. So bravo, Netflix. Yeah, I'm glad you said that about The Queen's Gambit because, I, you know, before I watched it, I heard nothing but praise about The Queen's Gambit. And so mm. after I watched the first episode, I was like, uh-oh, I'm I'm going to hate this. This was, I, I okay, I, I, was, I knew I wasn't going to hate it, but I was like, this yeah. is a little wonky. Um, I hated the child actor who played Beth when she was in the, uh, the orphanage, but then she turns into Anya Taylor-Joy and the show kicks <laughs> off. I, it's such a good show. Flashbacks are hard to pull off, man. And yeah. uh, I would say less flashbacks, the better. And that's one of the reasons I think we hated Hillbilly Elegy as much <laughs> as we did. Because you're, you're still getting flashbacks. It's a flashback structure. You're still getting them, yeah. you know, three quarters of the way into the movie. And they're not good. Yeah, flashbacks are almost never good. So, and and <laughs> especially in TV shows. I, I kind of hate when TV shows do a flashback episode. It's like, I, I just don't yeah. care. I'm sorry. 
give me narrative momentum, especially in serialized TV. Give me narrative momentum. So, yeah, you do start off uh, without the momentum that the Queen's Gambit does pick up with. And well, once it stops, though, it's hurtling. I mean, you can't mm-hmm. stop watching that show. Yeah, it's I great. mean, my favorite part about it is that, you know, it's pretty in-depth about chess, and they talk about mm-hmm. all these things that, you know, the Queen's Gambit, and I can't even remember any of the names of the actual moves or stuff, but they never tell you what they are. So right. you're kind of just like, oh, sure, okay. But it works. Like, it, it, like you're still invested in it. You still understand the stakes that are going on. So I think that's really amazing that they're able to do something so specific like chess and make it so accessible. Um, and it's also really good at world building, like having this whole almost chess world. Um, every now and then in the show, I sit there and I'm like, oh, my God, I get, this is about fucking chess. I can't believe that like <laughs> <laughs> like that there's like the bad boy of chess with the Thomas Brody Stankster character and stuff. It's so funny, but um, fantastic show. Yeah. Some of the best movies and best TV I've seen forces the audience to come along. And if they can't, they can't. And it's just very respectful to the sophisticated audience, or at least it's, it's trying to raise their game. And you, yeah, I mean, if you want to understand the queen's gambit, you got to research it like tenant. I know a lot of people don't like tenant, but Tenant kind of requires that right. you watch 20 YouTube videos and you kind of see it three times to where, you know, then you can get it and then it then it washes over you. But not until then. Like, if you just watch it the once, it's, you know, you're not going to love it as much. And Jordan Peele's stuff has been that way with Get Out and Us. I mean, it just rewards this film study, rewards extra viewing. And, yeah, I'm so glad we're, we're together on that. Yeah, definitely agree. Like, like you can just kind of watch it once and just enjoy it. And it's it's it, it's not something that you you should passively watch, but it's something that you can passively watch if you if you want to. Yes, but you know, again, I mean, if it's dense, like, like you just did the Fincher uh, uh, top five. Right. I mean, how many times can you watch a Fincher movie? Almost an endless right. amount of times. And I, I told you, but in the pre-show, like, I don't even need to do film study for all our Fincher stuff coming up because I've kind of watched every one of his movies almost every year of my life. (laughs) I just do because they're that good and they're that rewarding. And if they're on Netflix, I'm clicking on Zodiac. I'm clicking on the social network. I'm just clicking on them anyway because they reward further viewings. And you're right. They also land that that first watch. So, I mean, that's, that's the, the, the stroke of a maestro right there. When you, when you can, when you can tell a story that way, that works as a one-time bedtime story, but you also want to hear every single night to to put you to sleep because it is that lullaby. Absolutely. And that's, I feel like I can say the exact same thing as The Crown. Um, you know, I, I have not seen Schitt's Creek or I've seen the first season a while ago or like parts of it, but I'm, yeah. I will eventually dive fully into that. Um, it's another show that kind of has to grow on you a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's what it I've heard. It, they don't nail it right off the bat. The first six or seven episodes are kind of, they're trying to finding their footing but once you fall in love with all the characters, at least especially the, the main four, it's it's irresistible stuff. Cool. So uh, Schitt's Creek, The Crown, The Queen's Gambit, those are all on Netflix. And those are all recommendations from Mike to kind of counteract our perhaps less than positive <laughs> review of some of Netflix's other content. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to um, shift gears to another streaming service, and it's going to be Hulu for my point two. And I saw the film Run. everything for me it's not fair i'm your mom it's 
my job to take care of you when you need me. Have you seen that one? I watched the first 15 minutes, but I was also trying to write about Hillbilly Elegy while I was doing it. And then I found, I figured that I wasn't paying attention. So I'm going to have to restart okay. run from the beginning. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no worries. So this is the sophomore feature film from Anish Shiganti. And he did his directorial debut in 2018 with Searching. And yes. that film is fantastic. It's a mystery thriller that takes place completely on computer screens which is a really stupid gimmick, but it actually works really well in the movie. <laughs> yeah, it does. So, you know, I, I really like that. Had high hopes for Run. Um, so this one on Hulu stars Sarah Paulson. And much to my frustration, originally, it has nothing to do with running. So poor title that the main character actually cannot run. She's um, in, yes. <laughs> She is paralyzed from the waist down. But so basically, this movie is about a mother uh, played by Sarah Paulson and her relationship mm. with her daughter played by, uh, I believe this is her first film, Kira Allen, who has basically a bunch of health issues. So she has diabetes, asthma, um, rashes. She's paralyzed from the waist down. So basically, Sarah Paulson's mother character, her whole identity is around caring for her daughter. And so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to reveal the kind of twist of the premise of this. So if you don't want to know anything about this movie, stop listening, go watch it. It's pretty <laughs> solid. But pretty quickly into the film, we find out that Kira Allen may not actually have as many mental health issues, or she may not have as many health mm. issues as we think she does. And Sarah Paulson's character is drugging her to make her seem like she's more sick than she is. So this is a Munchausen's by proxy character in Sarah Paulson. Uh, and the rest of the film is basically Kira Allen attempting to escape or quote unquote run from her mother. And so it's kind of like this, this thriller. Yeah. So it's like ready, set, <laughs> go. And so now it's her just trying to escape. Yeah. If you're a trailer junkie, I mean, you get as much in the right. trailer. So I, I don't think you spoiled anybody. Yeah. Yeah, you're good. Um, and so this movie is super dumb. Um, it's a dumb thriller <laughs> that really doesn't make much sense. Um, oh, no. You know, but it is one of those 100 minute films that just works because it's tense, it's thrilling, it completely commits and takes itself seriously, even though it's really silly. And there's some twists and turns, and there's an awesome ending, and you just have fun for 100 minutes of this girl trying to escape. Classic thriller. It's super convenient. It's super nice. Um, there's many times in the movie where you could be like, w wait, so this is the first time she's figuring this out. She's been This has been happening for 18 years and she's never once thought this. Uh, isn't it convenient that all of this is happening in 24 hours? And it's sort of like, yeah, but but who cares? It, this is I'm enjoying myself. And so I don't think it's like, you know, a sensational movie or anything like that. But I had a ton of fun um, and I would definitely recommend it because it was just an enjoyable hour and 40 minute that you can just have for free on Hulu. I'm glad to hear that. I will finish my watch. If The only thing I can add, and maybe you can confirm or deny this is uh, that you can't really watch this movie with the laptop open. I mean, a lot of movies these days, you could do that, especially being home, and, you know, you kind of not half pay attention, but you can do yeah. both at the same time, kind of work or do whatever, and, and also watch a movie. Did, did you watch this with the laptop open, or was this a no, featured watch? No, yeah, yeah. This, was, this was a feature watch, um, I think, right after this. 
or maybe the next day we watched Holiday, and that's definitely a laptop movie. <laughs> Um, right. but yeah, <laughs> this one, it, it does have enough actual craft to it too, that like you will be rewarded by watching things. And so just kind of the way that things are set up and it's almost like a, like a diehard esque movie where she kind of has to oh. come up with ways to get out of certain situations. And again, oh. it's, it's ridiculous, but like, you know, she, she can't use her legs <laughs> or she's locked in her room. So like, what does a person like that do if the the phones have been disconnected? So there's these really well set up kind of you know i i don't want to say like action set pieces because it's all very hmm. small but it's like okay she's gotten here now what and now what and it's it almost reminds me a little bit of the martians speech at the end of matt damon being like you just keep going and you do the next thing and then you figure out how to do the next thing and so that type of movie is really fun for me to just kind of watch a character sort of wits their way through the scenes so um yeah i thought it, i thought it was great um, I did do some research on this movie, and it was actually supposed to come out in theaters on Mother's Day, which huh. to me is batshit crazy to like. That's <laughs> almost as dumb as putting out Hillbilly Elegy yeah. for your family Thanksgiving. <laughs> exactly. But it's like this movie about a girl running away from her mother on Mother's Day. I mean, I get oh, counter-programming, no. but like right. <laughs> I, I've never found Mother's Day to be a particularly important holiday So. Or, that's not true. I, I care about my mother very much. I, I what <laughs> I mean <laughs> what I mean is that I've never found it to be such a dominating force that it needs counter programming in the same way that like Christmas does or something, you know? But um, it's not the movie going right, holiday. Right, 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 right. Makes sense. But no, you you sold me. You you did not uh uh, you, I don't know if a hard is that a hard sell or a soft sell, but uh, I, I don't know my terminology. Yeah. I'm not a salesman anymore. But you got me when you, you know, you said it was diehard esque, and I have Joey and Chandler levels of reverence <laughs> for that film. So you got me, man. Yeah, I mean, diehard in <laughs> in a house with a girl in a wheelchair. So like, <laughs> temper your expectations, of course. But I think just like that sort of idea of maneuvering through things is pretty fun. So. Perfect. That's that's run on uh, Hulu that you can get for free if you have Hulu. I read that it was, I think, their most popular original movie yet in terms of viewership. Yeah, that surprises me, though, because um, Palm Springs, I thought, I don't know if that counts because it was purchased from Neon or whatever, but I, I don't know. I, I thought a lot of people watched that, so right. who knows? All right. Anyways, this has been our review of Hillbilly Elegy. Mike, thanks again for joining me. This was super awesome. You guys are the best at what you do, so I really do love getting a chance to talk to you and and also my I mean and Mike one whenever I can. So thank you so much. Is there anything specific that you want to plug here? Well, you're very kind, too kind, embarrassingly <laughs> kind. There, you're wrong, but I appreciate it. I will take the compliments where I can get them. Uh, like I said, we're going to do a make mini series over the next two weeks, and uh, Marty's going to come on for the. Uh, finale of that with the fincher award show we think we hope and hopefully you know more stuff doesn't go down that uh, <laughs> we have to cancel or move that around because you were supposed to come on earlier for a hillbilly elegy crossover thing and i think i touted that on social media so sorry about that folks but we we, we got it all done in this episode and I'm, I'm i really appreciate you rolling rolling with all the the wackiness here and i know mike appreciates that he wanted to be here as well but uh 
like I said, we crushed a Netflix film today, but to be honest, Netflix has been sustaining and so necessary for our year in hell of 2020. We have loved so many of their movies. A lot of them are in my top 10. We've reviewed a bunch of them. We do a lot of crossovers with uh, Andrew Morgan of the Nomcast, which is a show I recommend. I know I know you guys have collaborated as well, but we got The Prom, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, The Midnight Sky, and of course, David Fincher's Mank uh, for December that we're going to hit and. uh a lot going on with the Oscars coming up. So th- thank you again, Marty, and, and thanks for giving me the time uh, to, to pitch all this stuff. Yeah, thank you so much for joining. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at Incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie M-A-R-A pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, moviemarathonerspod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our website, evergreenpodcasts.com slash movie-marathoners. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Overcast, Himalaya, and CastBox. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time when I'm joined by Matt Neglia from Next Best Picture to discuss one of Netflix's other awards contenders, hopefully better than this one, David Fincher's (laughs) Mank. So stay tuned for that. And until then, remember that life's a marathon, so let's take it one movie at a time. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. 